Welcome to the Bloom Podcast, Human Stories of Resilience. And I'd like to begin by acknowledging the traditional custodians of the land on which we're recording today and paying my respects to their elders past and present. I extend that respect to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples who might be listening. Hey, Susie. Hey, Steve. Got a question for you. Fire away. What do you want to do when you grow up? <laughs> There's an assumption in that, isn't there? Hmm. Quite a few, actually. Quite a few. That I want to grow up, that I'm going to grow up, that I intend to grow up. You have one of the most interesting career histories of anyone I know. It's like a party trick. Hey, I've got this friend. He studied <laughs> to be a priest. He was going to be a priest. Then he went into magazines. Now he's a hypnotherapist and he does a bit of podcasting on the side. Yeah, you're you're like my dinnertime uh, party story. That pleases me to know that my grotesquely distorted (laughs) trajectory is uh, giving someone some pleasure somewhere. Well, I think because you have done a few different things in many, in different countries and quite varied as well. And so I think genuinely it's a good illustration that people of that thing about people having multiple, you know, we all hear people have five careers in their life or whatever it is. And yeah, I think you really do. Whereas actually most people I know don't come to think of it. I mean, both my my brother and my husband have worked in IT for a hundred years. I've done marketing for a long, long time in quite a niche area. So I, I know a lot of people who who buck that trend, I suppose, who hmm. had a, a straightforward, long, successful, happy but fairly consistent career journey. Is yours a vocation, Susie? The, the marketing is that was that really a passion? Not until I st- not until I got there. I mean, I remember I worked for a couple of years in sales. Then I went into sales in the book trade. Then I thought I wanted to be an editor. Would have been a terrible job for me. Don't know why I thought that. I, it's probably it's the glam choice in publishing. And then when I fell into marketing and discovered I really loved it. So no, it wasn't a sort of, I had, I've never had a, as a young person, I didn't have that strong. I really want, really want to be an ex. Um, I never had a moment I knew, if you like. I had the opposite. I mean, I had a great sense of certainty at the age of 10. (laughs) that I wanted to be celibate and be a Roman Catholic priest for the rest of my life. What the fuck? Yes. (laughs) (laughs) That is um, hard to think that a 10-year-old could be making a a balanced choice, understanding all the issues at stake there. Well, I suppose the more loaded term, you just said balanced choice. I suppose the more loaded term that is used sometimes in different circumstances is informed decision, isn't it, or an informed choice? And, of course, it wasn't. I mean, my, my parents, as Irish Catholic parents, were of that kind of culture that thought that this was a great, genuinely believed that because I felt it, it must be a vocation that God was calling me to be a priest because I'm the eldest of, of our family. My brother, Con, who's 14 months younger, he claims that he had the idea first, but it fell on deaf ears because it was coming from the wrong throat. As soon as I happened to um, to bring it up, the next thing I knew, I was sitting in front of the Archbishop of Birmingham and uh, at St. Chad's Cathedral in, in Birmingham being interviewed. And I, I, I may have told you this before, but I've long, I long had a, a feeling that I was on one of those travelators at the airport. You're going along and you're seeing gates pass you by and it feels like you're you're kind of out of control, that you made your decision when you got on. So you're not getting off again. And yet you didn't become a priest and you have a, a lovely marriage and two kids, so you're clearly not celibate or <laughs> <laughs> I don't know where I'm going with this. 
there we go more anyway. assumptions <laughs> yeah. and i i'm pretty sure i've said this before i think you would have made a great priest and in fact here at this end of your career journey you are doing funerals so that's kind of priesty it does seem ironic to me that somewhere jesus says something about himself being the cornerstone and that for me is really what happened that when i because i didn't choose not to go on i was actually given the boot by the spiritual director who basically thought I didn't see in me, I think, the vocation that I assumed that I had, that I'd made, you know, that decision 12 years before or whatever. So he kind of booted me out and I ended up at university. And for me, my religious vocation was all of a piece with my religion. So within my first term at university, I'd lost all of that, didn't believe in God anymore, wasn't going to church anymore. And I have kind of found my way back to it in a different way. Hypnotherapy does feel to me very much like a strange echo of the confessional. <laughs> and the funeral thing. Yeah. So there are there are elements there of well, no, because that wasn't what attracted me to it in the first place. I don't who who knows what I was attracted by when I was ten years old, but the, the images that I've had of my life, the, the travelator was one. Another one was a sense of being in a cloistered life, you know, being in a quadrangle. And my spiritual director there was sitting, telling me that he thought I should go away and get some experience of the world. And suddenly feeling these walls come crashing down. And I was very exposed because I'd, I'd lived a very cloistered, sheltered, institutionalized life. So I ended up at university hiding behind a terrible beard as perhaps the world's youngest 21-year-old. I didn't know anything about the world. I didn't know any women who weren't um, my sisters or nuns, but I was eager to find out. Yeah. <laughs> It's amazing to me that you'd lived your whole life as a Roman Catholic and the last 10 or 11 years as an uber Roman Catholic in training for the priesthood. And the vocation and the belief just evaporated like that. I suppose we need to remember that that happened to Saul in the New Testament. He, you know, he was this um, anti-Christian. He was persecuting Christians, finding them and hunting them down. And he had his road to Damascus moment and suddenly became the, you know, the really passionate believer. I, I think it can flip that way sometimes in the same way, I think, perhaps it, as people who've been married and something goes wrong with the marriage and you can see it sort of turning inside out and that many of the same things that you loved the person for or at least put up with become intolerable to you. Was there a moment that you had a, 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 did you have a road to Damascus moment or did it sort of seep away over the course of that first semester at university? Well, not just there, but I do remember sitting on Caldy Island, which is an island off the coast of Wales, just by Tenby, which is inhabited by monks. I was there for the summer, you know, serving in the, um, the cafe and so on. And sitting on a hill there with someone who, it was very rare for me to meet someone who wasn't a believer. And he he was my age. He just didn't believe at all. He was just a, an atheist or didn't even think about it. And uh, the sun was going down. And I, I remember, I, I cringe now to think about it because I gestured dramatically at the sunset and said, there, there's your proof. And I've got no idea what I meant at all. It's like... And I'm not not surprised that that didn't work on him. But, you know, he didn't suddenly, oh, I've been so blind. <laughs> Look at that sunset. Now I believe. Now I believe. 
so that wasn't the that wasn't the moment for me. But wasn't the moment for him either. <laughs> it was. It wasn't the moment for him. He was mystified and and baffled. There's a story by G.K. Chesterton, a very sweet story about a father and a son sitting on the beach at sunset, and the father sort of playfully lowers his hand at the same time as the son is sinking over the over the ocean, and the little boy looks up at his father in wonder and delight and claps his hands. And says, do it again, Daddy. Uh-huh. Sweet. Whereas your friend was probably clapping you kindly on the shoulder and saying it's a very nice sunset, Steve. Lovely. Yeah. And I know that people with with a religious belief, I don't, well, I don't know. I've I've met people with a religious belief who genuinely feel that you and I, Susie, are missing out because we don't have this in our life, that we have been robbed or you know, that we're missing out. And, and I don't feel that at all. I'm, I'm filled with at least as much wonder, not so much about sunsets, but about what happens inside the human body, what happens inside the human brain, how the mind works, what consciousness is, what's out there in the universe. As much as I ever was before, I don't think, I, for me, it doesn't need the presence of God to be that amazing. You don't remember a moment where you didn't believe the sliding doors moment where the thing happened and then you suddenly didn't believe it was more of a, it seeped away. And then before you knew it, it was gone. I think it, it, it was a real culture shock to me to arrive at Lampeter in Wales on my 21st birthday, the day on which I met my wife, actually. I said, what are you doing here? No, I, I, I met <laughs> and, and uh, we didn't get together for quite a few years after that, but that was the very first time that we met each other. But I remember it was a real culture shock to discover that there were people who didn't go to church every day, let alone on Sunday. I started going out with a girl and she was religious. So we would go to the Methodist chapel together and then to the Catholic church for mass together. So you're a fun date. Yeah. Well, and then we go back to bed. I couldn't kind of quite handle all that I was experiencing. I couldn't reconcile that with what I believed or what I'd inherited. Speaking of a moment I knew, I do actually have a really strong sense of the weirdness of being expected to become a priest and preaching to a full church. Not that that would happen anymore. No full churches. Speaking to a full church and there would be a Catholic mother about three quarters of the way down with a whole row of children and telling her that children were a blessing from God and that she couldn't use contraception or avoid her marital duties because children were a blessing from God, said he, living all by himself up in the in the big house. And did that strike you even at the time when you were in the middle of it and in the training? and all the rest of it. Yeah. What right would I have to tell other people how to live their life, which is pretty much the position description for a priest. (laughs) (laughs) Can we just strike this bit out? Can I take the rest of it, but not do that bit about telling other people what to believe and how to live their life, please? And then you kept on studying and then you got quite a few letters after your name and then you got a job and then you got another job and then you moved to Australia and then you became a hypnotherapist. Was there a moment there? There were two moments, actually. There was an hour in which someone was talking about neuro-linguistic programming. And I'm, I'm someone who always wants to know where things come from. So I followed this back to its source and found a really interesting character, Milton Erickson, who was an American doctor and psychiatrist who had developed hypnotherapy as a therapeutic tool and started reading about him I'm sure I've told you this before, because I suddenly realized I had this terrible intellectual blind spot. I don't know anything about hypnosis, 
but I do know that it's bollocks. And I remember thinking, well, you can't have it both ways. If you don't know anything about it, you're not really entitled to an opinion. So I'd better find out. So I started reading about this Milton Erickson character who's just extraordinarily weird and amazingly different thinker about the world and thought, I need a dose of this. I'd actually like to see what it feels like. So I went to a hypnotherapist and said, can you just hit me with the, not into the eyes, not into the eyes, not around the eyes, all that sort of stuff. Just give me a dose of it. I don't particularly need it to work on anything. And that then for me was the equivalent of Thomas putting his finger into the wound of Jesus's side, looking for proof that this really was Jesus. And actually it was for me. I discovered that it was not bollocks at all. It was this amazing, different experience of what it's like to be not awake and awake at the same time and to have someone stirring up your subconscious and helping to rearrange your thought processes and your values and your beliefs. And I remember walking out into the sunshine afterwards, kind of dazzled by this extraordinary experience. That makes me think hypnotherapy has had a bad marketing run because I'm sure most people, you know, can you make me walk like a duck? Yeah. Yeah. I think that's I think that's right. It it's so badly misunderstood. But then, you know, you look at the way anything is presented on television or in the movies and it's it's never really the way that it is, is it? So here we are people are kicking off their university studies or starting their final year of school and thinking about young people thinking about what they want to do with their lives. I wonder how many of them want to be hypnotherapists or indeed priests. I'm concerned about those people who have got really high scores and are on a trajectory to become a lawyer or a doctor or one of those high status professions. Because I've met many of them in my time who've gone down that road and realized belatedly that they've been carried there by the momentum of their high scores at school or their getting into a great university course. And they've belatedly come to realize that this is not the life that they want to live at all. Those are the people that concern me more than people who don't know what they're doing. Yeah. So they're on their own travelators. Yeah. And I've always thought that university in particular, not so much year 12, because typically you're in the same environment as you were in year 11, but arriving at university is the perfect opportunity to reinvent yourself completely anew, change your name, be known as someone else, try wearing different clothes and try hanging out with different sorts of people, as opposed to, as I say, what what troubles me are those people who, you know, arrive burdened with a 99.5 and are on a, a, you know, on a course to do medicine or something and never see anything of life because they're too busy studying. Fuck that. I don't know if that's our age. University now strikes me as a much more transactional experience where you uh, the, these kids are pretty much aware they've got staggering fees to be there and they need to hop on that vocational drive, get their qualifications and, and get out. I mean, I'm, I'm sure and I hope there are still some people who are getting out of it what you and, and I both got out of it from the, from the sounds of it. But I think it's, I think it's reducing. And that's sad, don't you think? Well, I do, except now I'm wondering if I'm like a Christian who wants to to share, wants everybody else to be having the same experience as me. <laughs> I've noticed with my kids that the schools now start talking to them about careers and resumes and 
doing career testing and so on from the age of 14 or 15 um, and talking to them about their their school choices and what that leads to uh, to a much more significant degree than than happened to me at that age which I think is good actually I think it's really good because it makes it all a bit real and gives them some ideas and exposure to the, the more practical end of learning. Just going to say, yeah, that that starts to put the pressure on at a time when shouldn't, at that age, shouldn't people still be trying out different things and abandoning them pretty quickly because they realise it's not for them? Two of my kids so far have done this careers testing where they do questionnaires and then it gives them different perspectives on their personality and what type of work they might be suited to. For both of them, it gave them new ideas that they hadn't come up with themselves. Because I think at that age, 14, 15, a lot of kids are still back in the kind of train driver, engine driver, doctor, nurse mentality of what careers are out there. I mean, they're really looking at those classic ideas and also what they've seen in their families and friends, aren't they? Yes, I can see that. I've got the same question for you then, Susie. What do you want to do when you grow up? When your when your kids grow up then? Say when you are free to do what you want to do. I always thought I'd like to write, but I've been doing that on and off over like write fiction. I've been doing that on and off for the last 30 years and I'm not sure that it's anything more than a fun thing to dabble in, which is fine. That's perfectly valid in its own way. I don't know. I think I'm quite a pragmatic person. I just want to exist, enjoy bake cakes, spend time with family. Hmm. I think we've recently acquired a new appreciation of the value of all of that, haven't we? I get a lot out of working. I enjoy working and I get a lot back from achievement and fulfillment at work and the social aspects and all of that kind of thing. But I don't have a specific, a real, really specific thing that I want to do if I've not written five books or become a psychologist by the time I'm 70 or be sad, that kind of thing. That That's not, hmm. I, don't, I don't have that. No. Nor me. So is this the moment I didn't know? (laughs) (laughs) Knowing that about yourself and accepting that about yourself, I think is quite important. It's tougher on those people who imagine that they're going to carry on working on the treadmill right until the point that they stop. And then they are going to go and do something extraordinary. And they discover that actually they're not that interesting at all, that they, they don't have this great novel inside them or that they are not going to do something amazing. And that's all right. Yeah. That what is what is left to them is a rose garden, yeah. a, a good recipe. And that it's more than all right. That's another one of the gifts of the... Uh, the wretched past couple of years we've discovered it was never time that was stopping us doing these things you know we've we've kidded ourselves for decades that really the only thing that stopped us is because we're so desperately busy and a lot of us have had far more time than we could ever have imagined and we still didn't do it that tells you something yeah we're using it to play word games on our phone or (laughs) we we tried the sourdough we did a lot of the sourdough and now we're done on the sourdough and we'd just rather go to the shop go to the shop and that's okay 